And by way of reminder, we are studying for a brief period of time in the Psalms, taking a little break from the Gospel of John, which we will revisit somewhere down the road. And so as we come to this Psalm, Psalm 33, sprinkled in the midst of all of the, um, the wickedness of man and the fears of man and the uncertainty of life and the hardships that we face, we find such an encouraging and uplifting truth about who God is and about what God has done for us so that you and I, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, can very simply praise the Lord. We face great difficulty and hardship in our life. It's, it, it, I often forget, especially when we gather together, that you and I, as believers, are in the vast minority of the peoples of the world. You may not forget that as easily as I do, I work in the church and I spend my time here. You work out in the world and you rub shoulders with the world in ways that I used to, but don't as much as I did at one point in my life. But when we come across a psalm like this, I remember that these psalms are written so that you and I, as the oppressed, as the persecuted, as the downtrodden, as the fearful, as the sometimes hopeless people of God, can be reminded why we have such a great hope. This is very simply a psalm of praise that reiterates the reasons, some of the reasons why you and I should find it fitting to praise the Lord despite what we face in our life. So we began this last week and we'll finish it, but I want to read the first nine verses of what we talked about last week and and kind of do a little bit of a review and then plow through the remaining verses and get to the heart of the matter for today. So follow along with me in Psalm 33. We'll read together verses 1 through 9 first. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And so the first thing that we see in these first three verses of this psalm is the call to praise. God's people are to praise the Lord, and that has an exclamation mark behind it. It doesn't have an asterisk, which means we only praise Him when we're happy, or when we're satisfied, or when we don't have the cares of the world. We are to praise the Lord all the time. Our praise is to be exuberant. There is to be a shout for joy. There is to be great excitement and thanksgiving in our praise of the Lord. The first three verses are sprinkled with this admonition to sing for joy because praise is becoming of the upright. Verse 2, give thanks with the instruments. Verse 3, sing to Him, play skillfully with the shout of joy. All that we have, all that we are, all that we are capable of is to be funneled into our praise of the Lord because He is God and we are His people. Secondly, praise is for the believer. Verse 1 says, sing for joy in the Lord. 
O you righteous one. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to Him, verse 2. And then in verse 3, sing to Him. The praise of God is uniquely a privilege of the believer. Unbelievers have no reason to really praise the Lord. When we gather together, our sole focus ought to be on how you and I as the people of God can praise God. If we get caught up in the lost people who may be attending or in an effort to draw unsaved people into our worship service, we will always be asking ourselves, what will a lost person think about this song? How will a lost person respond to this song? What should we do so that we don't offend the unbeliever who may be here? You see, worship is uniquely for the people of God. And when you and I gather together with God's people on the appointed day of worship, we should sing for joy to the Lord a unique privilege of the believer. Thirdly, in this call to praise, is this, that our praise is to grow. Verse 3 says, sing to Him, a new song. As we grow in our relationship with God, as we become more and more aware of His goodness and His faithfulness and the richness of His mercy and His grace, we should be singing new songs to the Lord as an expression of our love for Him, of our thanksgiving towards Him, and of our continuing need for Him. There should be a never-ending flow of new songs being sung to celebrate the greatness and the faithfulness of God. Have you ever wondered why, when you turn on Christian radio, you're constantly hearing new songs? It isn't because the old songs are bad. It isn't because the old songs aren't, aren't, aren't relevant any longer. It's because there's a continuous newness of expression of love and thankfulness to the Lord. So the call to praise that we find in these first three verses leads us to number two, the motivation for praise. The motivation for praise is expressed in five very specific reasons within this psalm. We only covered the first two last week. So as a review, the first motivation for our praise of God is for His character. Verse 4 reads, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. All that God says and all that God does is consistent with His character, which in this verse is described as being upright, or righteous, and it is faithful, meaning that it always, always is true. We are sometimes unfaithful, sometimes we are faithless, but that can never be said about God. God is always faithful, and everything that He says, and everything that He does is consistent with His nature and His attributes as a whole. We celebrate and parade the love of God, and the mercy of God, and the grace of God, but do we praise Him for His justness? Do we praise Him for His wrath? No, we don't like to do that because we want to separate the attributes of God and to what we like, what is pleasurable, what makes us feel good, but the reality is you cannot separate the attributes of God. He is God singular. His character is described through His attributes. And so we praise Him because everything that He says and everything that He does is consistent with His nature. This psalm tells us that He loves righteousness and justice. It means that God doesn't love unrighteousness and God doesn't love injustice. Everything that God loves, 
we are to love. Everything that God says is pleasing to Him ought to be pleasing to us as His children, as benefactors of this gift of grace and mercy. You and I are to love the things that He loves, which are peppered with righteousness and justice, consistent with this character. He filled the earth with His loving kindness. Everywhere we go, we can see the handiwork of God and the loving kindness of God. We marvel at God's created world. We see its beauty. We see its majesty. And it points towards a praiseworthy God. But everything that we enjoy in this life, our relationships, the food that we eat, the beverages that we drink, the entertainment that brings us joy, all of these things are an indication of the loving kindness of God towards us and that we can enjoy this life that we live in this temporary place. I made this mention last week. You know, God could make everything taste like unflavored oatmeal. But He doesn't do that, right? You have juicy, flavorful steaks. You have an assortment of seafood. You have all kinds of creatures that fly in the air that are filled with good flavors. There's fruits and there's vegetables and there's all kinds of things that smell good to us. God could have made everything smell like a skunk and everything could have tasted like unflavored oatmeal. But God in His loving kindness didn't do that. He allowed us to enjoy an array of things that bring us pleasure in this life. And as long as they aren't perverted and distorted... They are good and God wants for us to enjoy them. The second thing that is a part of our motivation for for the praiseworthiness of God is for His creation. Not only His character, but also His creation. This created world has come by His Word. There was once a period where there was absolutely nothing and God spoke everything into existence. It is through His breath and by His hands, everything that we see and experience in this world has come through the created work of God. All of the world is to stand in awe of Him. All of the inhabitants of the world are to revere Him because of who He is as we see it displayed in the majesty of His creation. Now, the unbeliever is incapable of praising God because he knows nothing of God's character. He doesn't attribute the created world to God as Creator. And he knows nothing of this relationship that enables us to become the children of God. And therefore, the unbeliever has no grounds to be able to praise God. Now, let's read the remaining portion of the psalm, and then I'll make some application from it. Verses 10 through 22. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope for his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death. And to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. And our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust 
in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So we come to the third motivation for the praise of God. Number three is we praise him for his purposes. Verse 10 says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. This is an amazing verse as we think about this and as we look back on the history of the nation of Israel in particular. Letter A, God overrules the nations, the peoples are plotting and planning and what it says here is that God nullifies the counsel of the nations and he frustrates the plans of the people. He overrules. Just as creation rests upon the divine word of the Lord, human history rests upon the divine plan of the Lord. You know, we often look around our world and we see all the things that are taking place and it's not uncommon for people to say, even those who profess to know God, where is God in all of this? What is God doing? How can these things happen? What's going on in God's world that these things can happen? Well, God rules the universe that He created from His throne and nothing happens that God does not allow. Now, you, you and I may not like the things that happen. You and I might disagree with the things that happen. But guess what? You and I are not God. We don't sit from the throne of the heavens on high We don't sovereignly rule over the universe that He created. You and I are strapped to a roller coaster along for the ride and God is the one who is in control. He nullifies and He frustrates. Now, just as quickly as you and I can look at the affairs of the world and can say, how could God allow that to happen? You and I have no idea about the plans and the purposes that God from His sovereign rule has said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let it come to pass. Have you ever thought about that? We only think about what is happening. We don't ever think for a moment about what isn't happening because God in His throne above overrules the plans of man. Now, these verses speak of the providential rule of God over the nation of Israel specifically, but it also speaks over all of the universe that God has created Generally, There's a very specific application for the nation of Israel. There's a very general application for the world that God has made. The words counsel and plans are to be understood as synonymous. The counsel and plans of man are subject to divine restraint. What man devises is subject to divine restraint. The counsel and plans of the Lord, however, cannot be stopped. There's nothing that any nation or any people group can ever do that will thwart the plans of God. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. God speaking, remember the former things long past, for I am God. And there is no other, I am God. And there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. What does that mean? 
It means exactly what it said. God said, I have plans and purposes, and there's nobody that can stop them. There's nobody that can interrupt them. I am God. I am God alone. And surely it will come to pass. God's plans and God's purposes are going to come to pass, and there's not anything that we can do to prevent that. These verses assure us that we live within the sovereign rule of God and His plans and purposes will be carried out. I have problems. God has plans. I have great difficulty and hardship. God has purposes. We often think that those don't enter twine themselves together, but I want to assure you that they do. We live under the sovereign rule of God. And that ought to enable us to breathe a big sigh of relief. Not having to fret and worry and wring our hands with what might, what could, when might it happen. God is in control. His plans and purposes will not be stopped. As I mentioned last week, the psalmist readers would have been reminded of God's sovereign rule when it came to their miraculous deliverance from the nation of Egypt. As you remember, they were enslaved for 430 years. Pharaoh was turning up the pressure. They were at the end of themselves. And at the appointed time, God raised up the man Moses to go and stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world, and say, the Lord has spoken and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. Not going to do it. In ten times, God's sovereign rule was demonstrated to the nation of the Egyptians. And they finally said, leave, take all of our gold, take everything you want, good riddance. Well, Pharaoh changed his mind and pursued them all the way to the Red Sea. And God in His majesty over creation, part of the Red Sea, the nation of Israel passed through, and the entire Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world, drowned as God allowed the waters to recede back upon them. God's plans and purposes will not be stopped. When it was time for God's people to inherit the land that He had given them, there was nothing His enemies, God's enemies, could ever do to stop them. We read this in Joshua. When God is giving Joshua the responsibility to lead the people, we see this in verses 1 and 2, uh, 2 and 3 of, of uh, chapter 1. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, and all, and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. I'm sorry, I didn't get in there. There it is. I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. God says, I have already given it to you. And as you remember the historical narrative that takes place, eventually they march around the walls of Jericho with nothing but the horns of the priests. And for seven days they do this. And on the seventh day they walk around the walls of Jericho seven times and miraculously the walls collapse. You see, God's purposes will not be stopped. Letter A, he overrules. Letter B, he rules. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's purposes are eternal. God's plans and purposes were established 
in eternity past. Now, you and I, as we live our lives, we get confronted with all kinds of unexpected circumstances, and we say, what are we going to do? How are we going to face this? Where should we go? Who should we talk to? How is this going to work out? And we, we just absolutely wring our hands, wondering and worrying about what we're going to do. And yet it doesn't work that way with God. You see, God rules, and His rule stands forever. It will never, ever change. When circumstances come into our lives, when great hardship is thrown upon the world, God doesn't say, what are we going to do? How are we going to address this? What should be the next decision? Let's call a committee meeting. Let's figure out the best course of action. God knows because God has established it in eternity past and His rule is going to stand forever. The summarizing statement for His ruling and His overruling over the peoples of the world is found in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. you know why that's true? Because the people of God know that God rules and He overrules. God rules sovereignly from His throne above. I sit safely in the scope of God's plans and I can leave it all up to God. I don't have to worry because God is in control. God's people cooperate with God's purposes. Therefore, there is great blessing that comes from being aligned with His plans. Now, this speaks very specifically to the nation of Israel. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. But today, we understand this to mean God's people everywhere. We don't, live, we don't have to live in a country that is ruled by Christian principles to be blessed by God because the people of God are not defined by geographic borders nor are they defined by ethnicity. We are defined as those who have given their lives to Christ, the fulcrum of human history. You see, those that have given their lives to Christ are the people of God, regardless of where they live, regardless of their racial or ethnic background. The people of God are defined as those who have given their lives to Christ. This is expressed in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul would write, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Peter, in these verses that were originally applied to the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, Peter makes application of these verses to the, to the church. These come from all parts of the Old Testament. He says in verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of human history is moving towards a singular point, and that is the reconciliation of God's created world to its Creator. All of human history is moving to a singular point, and that is the reconciliation of God's created world, both the physical world and the humanity, to its Creator. You see, the unbeliever cannot praise God for His plans and His purposes because He stands opposed to them because He is outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But for the people of God, we ought to praise Him. We ought to celebrate His sovereign rule 
over the world that he has made, knowing that he rules and he overrules, and you and I can sit comfortably resting in God's purposes and plans that he oversees from his throne in heaven. Now, number four, the fourth motivation for our praise, praise for his watchfulness. Now, we see God's omnipotence in his amazing work of creation. God from nothing created everything. We also see God's omniscience over the nations, the peoples, and the nations expressed in the previous verses. And now we see God's omniscience laser-focused over individuals. Verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. This tells us just a couple of things here. Letter A, God sees it all. From his dwelling place, from his throne in the heavens, God looks, he sees, and he looks out over all of humanity, and there is nothing that escapes the eyes of the Lord. He is watching intently. Now, I can look out over this room, and I can really only focus on one person. I can see everybody peripherally, but I can't really tell what everybody's doing. You know, God looks from his throne over the entire mass of humanity, and he knows with excruciating detail everything that is going on. He doesn't miss a thing. I remember when we had little kids, and they were running around the house, preschoolers, and you'd all of a sudden hear nothing, and you'd go, uh-oh, I need to see what's going on, right? You remember those days? You might have that with some grandkids you take care of. But you can only watch one thing at a time. But God in his omniscience is everywhere all the time and sees everything that every person does all at once. Absolutely amazing to consider this reality. Now, this truth that God sees everyone isn't reserved just for the children of God, but for all of God's creation. It says, all the sons of men, all the inhabitants of the earth. On a very large scale, God sees all the actions of the nations against his plans. And on a very small scale, God sees the actions of every single person all at once, completely and perfectly. Now, on the one hand, this is an incredibly encouraging verse because it means that God sees everything that's happening in my life. God, this all-powerful creator, this majestic being, sees everything that I do and is intimately acquainted with and aware of all that is happening in my life. Nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. He knows. Isn't it good to know that? When we feel like he might be out of touch, we're assured that he isn't. If we feel that God is missing something that's going on, we know that he's not. God sees it all. Now, on the other hand, this can be an incredibly disturbing verse because it means that nothing we do escapes the eyes of the Lord. We can't pull the fast one. There is no sleight of hand with God. He doesn't miss a thing. God knows. Now, letter B, not only does God see it all, He understands it all. Verse 15, He who fashions the hearts of them all, He who understands 
all their works. Now, this word fashion that we see here is the same verb that is used in Genesis 2-7 when it talks about God fashioning man out of the dust of the ground. The implication is that God has created the hearts of all, of those that oppose him and of those that will seek him. God has made us all, and because that is true, God understands us all. He sees what we do. He knows why we do it. He knows the intentions, our motivations, our desired outcomes. He knows and understands it all. For the unbeliever, I don't believe they can praise God for this reality. Because God in His omniscient watchfulness sees everything that takes place in the lives of the unbeliever and apart from this saving relationship with Jesus Christ, everything that happens in the life of an unbeliever is grounds for eternal separation. But for the believer, we should take great comfort in knowing that God sees it all, God understands it all, and we are never out of His sight. When He sees our actions as sinful and as selfish as they may be, He sees them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all our sin. Isn't that good to know? See, that's not true for the unbeliever. The unbeliever can't praise God for these attributes that tell us that God sees it all and God understands it all. Number five, the fifth motivation for praising the Lord is we praise Him for His power. Verse 16 and 17, The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Now there's a contrast being painted here as we imagine, as we, excuse me, as we consider the power of God. The first part of the contrast is letter A, human power. Now the psalmist uses imagery that would be very, very familiar to his hearers. Mighty armors, armies and warriors and horses, these components of a military threat would reflect the greatest strength of men. We would say the guns and the tanks and the grenades and the airplanes and the missiles, all of those things that reflect the power and the might of men. This is the contrast here. In David's day, assuming he's the one that wrote this, all they knew was hand-to-hand combat. And they knew chariots pulled by horses. And they knew great warriors who rode on these horses and slew dozens of people. Well, going back to the Exodus, when God delivered His people, the Hebrew people had been slaves for centuries. They were brickmakers, had no military skill or training of any kind. And upon their Exodus, these brickmasons being pursued by the greatest army in the world, could do nothing but depend upon the might of the Lord. The greatest military army in the world that would reflect the strength of human power paled in comparison to what God was able to do by parting the Red Sea and allowing His people to pass through on dry ground and then have those waters recede and kill off that army. The contrast is between human power and divine power. 
Returning to the theme of God's omniscience, you'll notice there is no longer the general reference to looking and seeing and watching in the previous verses, but a most specific reference here in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive and famine. You see, it's no longer God looking and seeing. It is the eye of the Lord that is very specifically trained upon the one who fears him. This speaks not to the mass of humanity, but to the individual believer, to those who fear him, to those that have placed their hope in him, the creator of the universe. You see, for you and I, in the face of overwhelming odds, God has his eye upon us and moves into action on behalf of those who love him, not according to our power, but according to his power. He will deliver by his power, not ours. He will deliver them according to his plans, not the plans of men. This deliverance will result in the praise of God, for he can do what man cannot Think back to the exodus that I've referred to several times here. This mass of humanity numbering over a million people just having left this place of slavery with the promise of God for deliverance, seeing this mighty army barreling down upon them. What do you think they're thinking? Where do you think their hope was? What were the options they had available to them? Start swimming? Start running around? They could never do either. And so they waited and they depended upon the divine power of God to do what man cannot do. He can deliver from the physical problems of this world, which is reflected in the mentioning of a famine. He can deliver from the eternal separation that we face, reflected in the reference of death. The unbeliever cannot praise God for his power because the power of God stands against the unbeliever. Now, Roman numeral three. We've seen the call to praise. We've seen the motivation for praise. And now we look at the confidence in praise. Very quickly, letter A. We wait. Verse 20 reads, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And don't you wish it said something different there? Don't you wish it didn't say we, something other than we wait? But that's the way it works. God, according to His plans and His purposes, delivers at the time that He has determined. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Why do we wait? Why must we wait? Because human power won't fix what needs to be fixed. God is our help and our shield. The word wait carries the idea of longing. There is this crying out. There is this acknowledgement of dependency upon God. It is this confidence in His sovereign rule working these things out on our behalf. And so we wait for the Lord because He is our help and our shield. He is the one who delivers. He is the one who protects. 
He is the one who promises. He is the one who provides. His past faithfulness ought to compel us to wait upon Him because we know Him to be faithful and dependable and true. Not some of the time and not most of the time, but all of the time. So when life gets hard, we wait for Him. When we don't think we can make it through another day, we wait for Him. When we're able to acknowledge that I cannot, we wait for Him. We wait for Him because He can. Letter B. Not only do we wait, we rejoice. Verse 21. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. You have to notice the relationship that is emphasized here. Our heart rejoices in Him. It is in this union with Him. It is in this connectedness to Him. It is in being a child of God that we rejoice. We rejoice in Him. Why? Because we trust in His holy name. You see, I think we would be able to say that when we aren't able to rejoice in our circumstances, in our hardship, in our uncertainty, it's probably because we aren't fully trusting in Him. To trust in His holy name reflects back upon the character of God, the one who is faithful and is upright, the one who loves righteousness and justice. Trust means confidence, assuredness, submission to, to be led by God, to trust in His purposes and His plans, to lay it all down before Him knowing that we can trust in Him. In the face of great odds, we rejoice. Up against tough circumstances, we rejoice. When we don't know how it's going to work out, we rejoice in His holy name because we trust Him. Let us see. We hope. Verse 22, Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. You see, as we have experienced His loving kindness in the past, we continue to desire it again. We hope in the loving kindness of the Lord. It isn't wishful thinking. It is a confidence in the continued loving kindness of the Lord. We placed our hope in His loving kindness. We placed our hope in His majesty and His grace. We placed our hope in His generosity and in His kindness and in His faithfulness to His, prom- to his promises. You see, the unbeliever knows nothing of the praise of God. He cannot praise God because he doesn't know God. He has no true praise for God's character, for His creation, for His purposes, for His watchfulness, or for His power. He lives disconnected from them, unaware of the vast love and goodness of God. But that is not true for you and I as the born-again believers the very children of God, we are to rejoice, we are to praise our God who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has enabled us to know the truth about who He is and what He has done for us in Christ. We are to praise the Lord with exuberance because of who He is and what He's done. I want to read these verses together. And I want you to read out loud with me. Would you please stand? 
want you to follow along with me. Read with me, would you please? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Do you believe that's true? For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Do you trust in His holy name? Verse 22. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. Do you hope in Him? Would you pray with me please? Father, we give You thanks for the richness of Your Word. Father, we thank you for the way it confronts us in our failure to praise you. We thank you for the way it instructs us and the reasons why we should pray you. We thank you, Father, that no matter what we face in this world, we can still praise you. Would you reveal to us in our heart of hearts where we reserve our praise for other things other than you? Would you reveal to us how we allow the circumstances of life to rob you of the praise that you are worthy of? Father, would you draw your children to yourself? Would you remind us of the worthiness of the name that is above every name? May you find in us a heart that is filled with praise because you are a faithful and righteous God one that has filled our lives in this world with your loving kindness, would you hear in us the praise that you are deserving of? May we bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing praises to his name.